It's an arcane world on the internet, and nowhere more than its dark intellectual corners. Generations of overeducation into transgressive abstract ideas fueled a very online population of chronic overthinkers, obsessed with making it weird. Inevitably, the fringes closed in on the mainstream, and during the COVID insanity, finally took it over. For the first time in a long time, I'm talking centuries, ordinary people became witness to the ancient fact that human beings, without much to do, will turn their attention to worship. And in the absence of any guardrails or authorities they can trust, they'll start worshiping just about anything. Surprising no one, the great idols to emerge from the online age are two, the psycho circus of sexual performance the internet fuels so well, and the internet itself, organized into the sentient form of the Star Trek-style Borg. In a prophetic restatement of what now seems increasingly obvious, Star Trek gave us not only the Borg, but the Borg Queen. Primal logic confirms the bug-like hive mind of the online Borg could only be ruled by a female-gendered android, a dark mother that creates and consumes, all in stark contrast to the law-giving father god familiar from Western antiquity. It wasn't just Star Trek that showed forth our dawning awareness that any Borg requires a queen. Just rewatch the Alien series, for instance, or at least the first two entries. But the Dark Goddess motif goes back just about all the way. It's the ancient snake worshippers and the Gnostic cults that threw Christianity into crisis and, despite desperate conflicts to beat back the menace, never really disappeared. It all makes sense, then, that the Internet's retrieval of the kinky occult would tap into Gnostic goddess worship. But looking around at the cultural dominance of heathens, heretics, and literal hellspawn, just how far can this go? How do we talk about this without sounding like crackpots? Or is that just the price we have to pay to bear witness to the truth? I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. Joe Allen is author of Dark Eon, Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. On sale in August, he's tech editor for Steve Bannon's War Room and a writer published at Chronicles, Human Events, The Federalist, and others. Joe, welcome to the show. James, very good to be here. Are you feeling like a crackpot these days? I've always been, so this really not a change of scenery for me. I think uh, all our pots are a little cracked. The difference is, is that for many years I was on the other side of the lights, observing the insanity and quiet. Now I'm here on this side. Oh, you, you crossed over. So tell us a little bit about where you were, how you, how you got to see it all from the other side. Well, you know, we've spoken about it a little bit before, but I was a rigger, a professional rigger. I would hang the motors and um, various other pieces of equipment for light, sound, video. It was a pretty spectacular view of the machine. I, I think you're very disconnected from the entertainment and you're, you're just beyond the reach of the, the mind control waves. So seeing many tens of thousands or occasionally up to 100,000 people having their minds warped by this sort of, I, I, I once in an article described it as actually a, a eusocial queen uh, at the center of the spotlight and all of the, the audience definitely, is, they're reminiscent of the workers. It's a makeshift colony, but it's a colony I think that extends out into the rest of society. And it's only made possible by technology. I think um, you know maybe the Beatles, 
kicked off something more uh, insectoid than their name would have even belied. That's a good one. I like that. So by the machine, you mean that whole sort of apparatus that surrounds the show on stage, whether it's, you know, music in your case or, or maybe things that are presented as maybe not a show, maybe like, uh, you know, television or politics. Absolutely. And I, I think that you also come to see all of them as somewhat interchangeable. It's the same technology, uh, oftentimes has the same emotional impacts. Uh, there's a difference, obviously, between a rock and roll show and a political rally, but there's not enough difference in my mind. You know, I once went to a, uh, a Donald Trump rally in, in Florida. It was very hot. The thing was put together kind of at the last minute. So, you know, you're, you're walking in and you got these guys working, uh, sort of trying to move crates of, uh, of bottled water in so that people don't pass out. And, you know, they were just not, not afraid to stop you and say, hey, would you mind grabbing a, a, a case and taking it in with you? So I go in, everyone's in there and, you know, it's a real sort of like WWE vibe. And uh, of course, everyone's waiting for the big guy to come out and he finally does come out. And, you know, unless you were right in front of the stage, what you saw is like a figure about this big. And, you know, mm. I, I, I'm pretty sure that it was Trump himself, but it could have been anyone. It could have been no one. It could have been a scarecrow with like the, you know, you got the, the hair and the glasses and the suit. Just put him out there and it says a few things. You know, it's like the boundary between reality and sort of animatronics just seemed so thin, even there with something where, you know, it was real grassroots energy and, and all that sort of populist stuff that, that you come to expect from a Trump rally. But even there, you know, as, as someone who was, was uh, not in the front row, uh, you could just see how easy it is to kind of clone that environment and, uh, and leave people with more or less the same feeling. You know, uh, looking out from backstage or uh, oftentimes from up in the catwalks and looking out onto the crowds and that sort of hypnotism that takes place, it was really powerful. Uh, even, you know, 15 years in, I continued to marvel at it. And I, I don't want to completely denigrate it. I think that a lot of great talent has appeared and, and graced the stage with wonderful art. But by and large, the machine has a lot more weight than the artists in many cases, most cases, I would say. Uh, Lady Gaga might have been the most uh, exemplary you know, Lady Gaga, I think, is actually very talented, but uh, the something about her show, the crowd that she attracted, the entire kind of, you know, tranny, uh, super butt sort of slut pop thing, um, I, I, it, it, it just made an impression more so than many others. Super butt is a genre now. Do I need, um, do I need to catch up? Well, that was actually just a describe. Like, you know, for all of Lady Gaga's flaws, she has remarkable derriere. But um, anyway, yeah, I, I think, though, that the entertainment industry has pervaded uh, most of people's lives now. Rather than even having to go to a show, you've got the show right here at all times. So that machine, it's not really just the machine in the arena. It's not just the machine in the stadium. Uh, the, the Roman Colosseum has now extended out into every home, uh, into every pocket. And uh, they say, the transhumanists say, soon into every brain. You talk about uh, the, uh, the spiritual dimension of all this in the book. We're going to get into that in a minute just to set the table. Did you get any, pick up any demonic energy out on the road? Any acts or just the whole vibe or, or how much did that sort of trickle into your consciousness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you've ever seen a, a tool show or a Marilyn Manson show or a ministry show, I'm kind of dating myself there, but uh, they kept going. Um, I, that certainly had that feel, uh, intentionally so. But again, that interchangeable nature of the medium and the people who just cycle through that spotlight, I, I would say that seeing someone like Joel Osteen 
had probably even more of a satanic feel, if for, if for no other reason, sort of like the, um, I believe it's the second beast in Revelation that speaks like the serpent, but has the uh, face of a lamb, if I've got that description correctly, that would be Joel Osteen to me. So I, I really do think that the godly veneer on top of something that is ultimately a facade and something that is built mainly by a machine, not just the technology itself, but the social organization and the finance behind it, that probably disturbed me more than something as honest as Lady Gaga. Fair enough. And, you know, and where is she now? She uh, seems like she's kind of trying to move a little bit away from the music. And, uh, and meanwhile, Joel Osteen is, is tripling down. Yeah, I, I don't follow it. I never followed any of it then. Um, my taste for entertainment really, you begin to get very desensitized to it. It's sort of like being an alcoholic bartender. It just doesn't taste the same. Okay, so uh, so at some at some point uh, something in you broke, or you or you started to, to back away, and you found yourself covering tech on a daily basis. How did you make the leap? Well, you know, I've I've been a writer for a long time. I bounced back and forth between the arena and academia for a long time as well. Uh, it was actually through academia that I made my my way into the arena, but um, you know, mostly it was very fringe publications. Publications would get me in trouble now. But we're still publishing there. And uh, after the pandemic, though, I just once they locked everything down, I spent all of my time, A, trying to figure out what the hell is going on and B, uh, trying to uh, describe it in writing. So I was living in Great Barrington when it all started. I'd just come back from Indonesia and it was jarring for everyone. It wasn't uniquely jarring for me, but I, I, I suppose that there, you know something about that need to always be out and among people and to constantly be on the move and travel and interact. It, it did hit me as hard as it hit those that, that really kind of broke under the pressure. So I, I bought a, a, a survival bunker on wheels and I made my way across the country in a kind of U from Great Barrington down through the Southeast, across the country, up the West Coast eventually landing in Montana. But along the way, I was chronicling it for uh, Cold Type magazine, which it's really a socialist magazine. And I, it was interesting because the editor, Tony Sutton, uh, he knew my leanings and uh, didn't mind anything that I had to say. He, he never tried to cut anything. Uh, he never tried to veer me left or anything like that. And um, I found myself in Montana writing for The Federalist about technology. I was doing a series and uh, that's when Steve Bannon hit me up to come on the show. And uh, a lot of coincidences later, I, uh, I've been there ever since. That was May of 2021. You feel like people are, are picking up what you're laying down over there? I think that it's very difficult to convey something as abstract as transhumanism without uh, overdoing it, right? And I try not to overdo it. I don't think you need to exaggerate. It, it, the, the subject matter needs no hyperbole. But... Many people are undoubtedly uh, understanding exactly what's going on, at least uh, those that I speak to. I go out to these events. Um, of course, people contact me all the time via email. I'm also plugged into the social media hive, and so you can see the reaction there. Uh, it's, it's not like I discovered it, right? Uh, this has been something that uh, tech critics have noted for, uh, you, you could say, as far back as, uh, say, William Butler Right. Um, and uh, the late 1800s, uh, Darwin among the machines. 
So it's not unique to me that I think the it's just I, I occupy a certain space trying to communicate what the negative effects of all these technologies are. And, and maybe for me anyway, I think the motivation behind it, the broader worldview behind it, uh, which is essentially a religious worldview, that's what's most important to communicate. The technologies themselves are astounding, uh, sometimes impressive and amazing, oftentimes horrifying, but the actual technologies in some sense mean less to me than the, the paradigm behind it, which so many transhumanists, posthumanists, futurists, technologists, they would like to see it as some sort of scientific worldview, and it is, but ultimately it's a religious worldview that takes scientific fact and uh, plays forward the, the historical progression of technology into something like a religious prophecy. I think you're right. So let's peel the onion one layer at a time here. Transhumanism. What is it? How do we know it when we see it? Well, it's the, the desire to improve human beings by way of technology, including merging human beings to technology. Uh, one thing I found interesting, by the way, about your book was that you, you so adeptly described the mentality behind transhumanism while almost never mentioning the word at this point, I'm, I'm pretty tired of the word, and I think a lot of people are. In fact, I think optimalism, futurism, uh, accelerationism, uh, those words will probably be the terms that really describe it going forward. But in, in essence, transhumanism is simply the desire to attain m magical power, really, by way of technology. It's the dreams of all the, the wizards and occultists of old and priests uh, coming into reality by way of technology, uh, communication at a distance, uh, ex exceeding power to destroy your enemies, right? Like you've got uh, everything from nuclear warheads to now drone swarms and, and everything in between. And so transhumanism is, uh, I would say, whether it goes by its name or not, in many ways, the overriding paradigm of our era, because in the absence of religion, in the absence of the assumption that the powers beyond the material uh, will actually be the culmination of humanity or the satisfaction of human desires, there's really nothing left except for science to explain where we're at and where we're going. And there's really not much other than human action on the basis of a scientific paradigm than technology to get us there. And more and more so, transhumanism or just the, the general futurist vision places the center of gravity in the machine. So the, the machine itself is in some way as important or more important than human beings. And of course, as you know, as you move over into the more post-human versions of this, uh, the human being eventually becomes irrelevant. We're just simply a biological bootloader for the software that will really realize uh, life on Earth. All right, so transhumanism, kind of a question mark. We've got post-humanism out there too. Uh, but if you're looking sort of at, at what the transhumanist goal is, as you described it, some kind of perpetual improvement or, uh, or optimization, um, what's the standard? Uh, what is being, being put forth for us as the measure of, of improvement or optimization? Well, you know, it gets tricky. Uh, I think the first standard, uh, going back to Julian Huxley, when he coined transhumanism uh, or gave it its real definition in 1956, it was biological and scientific 
optimization, right? So um, it, it was really focused on improving the human mind, the human intellect, human culture. Uh, and then as it, as it evolved, especially the, the optimization sort of, uh, it, eugenics is uh, the basis of this, right? Julian Huxley was very much an avowed eugenicist. So you could say that the uh, standard goes back to the idea of strength, beauty, intelligence. The, these standards from classical Greece were the initial impetus to improve the human being genetically and neurologically. But as technology really developed and, and became an entity of its own, I mean, already in the 50s, you, it's the, po the post-war era where the real power of technology from the airplane to mass communications to the nuclear warhead, uh, all those things were readily apparent. And so as transhumanism evolved, and especially as people like Max Moore uh, began to describe its trajectory, and Ray Kurzweil maybe even more so, definitely more so, um, then the machine becomes the standard. So you have all the same sorts of classical principles of beauty, intelligence, strength, but now, rather than looking forward to the smartest human, the strongest human, the most beautiful human, uh, you now are looking forward to the strongest, most beautiful, and most intelligent machine. Well, you know, it's, it's bizarre to, to walk around, I mean, really almost in any American city or town these days, and you're just you're looking at your fellow man, and people are struggling out there. They're, they look worse, their health is worse, their they're, you know, sperm counts dropping, IQ's not doing so good, just kind of across the board decline. And so, like, why are we seeing that spread so swiftly and so powerfully at a time when ostensibly uh, the people in charge are trying to boost us up into some kind of superhuman plane? You know, I think that's one of the reasons it's so difficult to convey how how potent these ideas are and, in fact, how potent the technologies are, even if the technologies remain always behind these ambitions. Because uh, we see this, right? You see infrastructure deteriorating. You definitely see social cohesion deteriorating. You see, even if you do have more and more excellent, say, UFC fighters, uh, you have uh, better and better spelling bee contestants, things like that in the upper echelons of human intellect or human performance. Uh, overall, uh, it, both statistically and certainly the visceral feel of society, and I, I still travel a fair bit, this is, is a, it's obvious that as society itself, as the technological infrastructure itself, and as human beings, both spiritually and even just outwardly, uh, begin to, de to deteriorate, uh, it's juxtaposed with uh, the ever-increasing technological capabilities coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, coming out of DARPA, or the, the, the institutions, the uh, corporations funded by DARPA. And uh, a lot of that is hype. A lot of that is a projection of power that isn't yet there. Uh, a lot of it's not, though. And so you do have all this concentrated energy on the excellence of the machine, and it is, it is proving itself to be, in fact, potent even as humanity at large, uh, I think, is continuing to wallow. The pandemic was not a death blow, but it was, it was a devastating blow. You know, I think that's all right. I'm also going to answer my own question here. Here's what I think is, is happening. There's this kind of theological concept where you have to go through hell to get to heaven. It's sort of like redemption through sin kind of thing. And where, you know, the only way that we're going to reach some kind of perfection, according to this theory is if we start from a kind of monstrosity. You know, it's like the Frankenstein plan. 
So, you know, if you want to create the perfect artificial man, well, you know, it's going to be a little janky in the beginning. I mean, look at any innovation, you know, what's, what's progress other than daring to do something that, that doesn't work in order to get something that does work down the road. And so if you're going to follow that path, you know, if you're going to start out with like, well, you know, maybe we can't really transform someone from a man to a woman using these tools, but we can kind of make it seem like it, you know, we can simulate it pretty, pretty well, as long as people don't, you know, look too far into the covers. Um, then you're gonna have to create a monster. You're gonna have to create something that is like a cyborg first, and then you know maybe we'll get to the next step down the road. Um, that might go away toward explaining why it is that we've got so many you know people who are not just kind of resigning themselves to something that is, you know, I don't want to say subhuman. That's not quite right, but something that's like so disfigured uh, that it's very difficult, you know, for people to look upon it and say like, ah, we've made it. Like we've optimized. We've progressed. We're we're fully and truly human now, uh, but instead, you know, it's like you have to ruin it before you can make it make it perfect again. You think that's going on? Well, do I think that perfection's the next step? Um, I, I personally doubt it. I really do. I, I do. I don't doubt the power of these technologies. Even, I mean, it's it's interesting. So the the example of transgenderism. It's oftentimes it's, it really is. A, a very present day relevant example of what happens when technologists want to transform a human being and you have willing participants, you have willing test subjects. And it, it is, I mean, you know, not to be uncharitable, but it is pretty monstrous. And uh, yet it, it, there's a, a, a spectrum that, that bleeds over into very heteronormative versions of it, right? I mean, all transgenderism really is, is uh, Baywatch uh, applied to uh, an XY chromosome, right? Uh, it, and so I, I think what we are in right now is absolutely becoming very monstrous in its presentation, very monstrous in its outcome, Again, just to keep on the transgender topic, the suicide rates are just horrific. And I don't think that anybody who's honest can can lay that at the feet of bullying or uh, people not being accepted in society. I, I think that it just represents people who are profoundly disturbed, uh, who are just left to um, they, they just keep handing them rope until so. Um, but I, the, the question of perfection, I mean, these surgeries will undoubtedly improve. Uh, I've actually, I can remember seeing videos of transgender surgeries from back in the late 90s, and it was uh, more horrific than it is now, although it's not a whole lot better now. Uh, I, I think they will improve, but it, it will not, I don't believe that artificial general intelligence, should it ever exist, should this sort of godlike uh, AI ever exist, I don't believe it will be anything like divine perfection, uh, nor do I think that um, any sort of robot is, it, no matter how elaborate, no matter how uh, effective, how dexterous, how beautiful even, uh, it is no replacement for human beings, warts and all, and uh, on down to genetic engineering. And, and, and with the transgender subject, if maybe we could leave it here, but uh, I, I suspect that no matter how elaborate these surgeries become and how perfected uh, the art becomes, it will continue to be something profoundly unnatural and uh, they'll never escape that. Well, there's no question. You got the suicides, you got the lawsuits that are starting to, to, to come out now. Uh, and you have these bizarre debates where, you know, this used to be known as like M MTF, FTM, male to female, female to male. 
but of course, you know, in some corners of that world, it's like, no, these are reified categories that don't really exist. There's no such thing as male and female. You know, and, and the impasse that you can already see, these kind of contradictions are, run so deep that it's not surprising that you see, you know, self-styled accelerationists coming along who basically say like, look, if we try to understand what is right and wrong, we are going to get stuck at like a, an incomplete level of development that is ultimately going to fail. And so the thing to do is to just floor the gas, reserve the, the ethical or moral judgments, stop trying to understand what's right and what's wrong. Uh, you know, very akin to, I think, what you, what you got out of sort of the, the wave of communist revolutions, where it was like, look, you know, we're really just kind of bracketing these moral claims. And if we don't just get it, go ahead with the business of revolution and get it on now, then we're never going to have the opportunity to get to the utopian stage where we start deciding how to sort of perfect things and make them beautiful and happy again. Um, so you've got accelerationism. And I think, you know, I think that, that people are becoming in, enchanted by accelerationism because there are so many stupid little decisions that, um, that being on our phones all day require of us. Uh, and so much in our society seems to be stagnant and, and adrift. Um, this kind of pressure is building up. Uh, and a lot of people are experiencing exhaustion, you know, and not the exhaustion from working too hard in the classical sense. Uh, but working too hard because of this kind of like perpetual decision fatigue, where we're constantly having to make these little micro decisions. But nothing ever really happens. Nothing big. Nothing that sort of breaks the cycle and gives us a period of rest. Pandemic lockdowns, that was, you know, I, I think a lot of people initially were like, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the big breather that I finally get where I can sit back and, and catch up with what's going on and make sense of, of who or what I am at this time. Didn't happen. Things kept going. Um, is there anything that is going to slow down or stop these developments, do you think? Uh, the few scenarios that I've thought of, of course, and I'm not alone in this, you've got just the, the, the limits, the bare limits on what technology can even do. Uh, it's quite possible that uh, artificial intelligence will never really progress to anything like the dream of artificial general intelligence. It's quite possible that uh, even large language models have topped out. I don't think they have, but it's possible. That would be one way that it would stop. I mean, we would still be stuck with what we have now, and I think that that's bad enough. Uh, but that would at least uh, preclude a, a singularity. Another, of course, would just be civilizational breakdown or uh, just deterioration, a massive war. Uh, anything that would slow any sort of progress down, be it economic, technological, social, uh, political, that would, of course, uh, put a, a, throw a big monkey wrench into the singularity. And, you know, there's divine intervention as well, although it would seem to me that uh, we've certainly been left to our own devices here, no pun intended. Uh, I, what I, I'm not a futurist. I, I, I don't pretend to be. I, I'm, really, most of my focus is on the, the religious underpinning of this, but I, I do believe that artificial intelligence will continue to improve. I, I do believe that medicine will continue to improve by way of genetic engineering and, and other more traditional modes of medicine. Uh, robotics are improving rapidly and I, I, I see no reason for that to stop other than the all the stopping points I just described. And so I really don't think that unless any of these dramatic uh, limitations are just simply in play, 
I don't think there is any stopping this. Right now, Congress is talking about how do we control artificial intelligence, of course, at the behest of people at Google and OpenAI. Sam Altman is in the, the middle of all of this as he's driving it forward, driving forward the regulation. And China's far behind us in artificial intelligence capabilities, but it wouldn't take too much, I don't think, in, in terms of technology transfer uh, or companies going to China should the U.S. just go full Luddite and say we're going to stop all of this. Um, so th there's and China just being one of many nations and you look at all of the different nations, corporations, institutions around the world and you look at human nature, the desire to improve upon the human and a, a growing desire. I mean, you see this. It's amazing. A growing desire to see the realization of something like a human-like artificial intelligence, what they used to call real artificial intelligence and now artificial general intelligence. So I, I, I really think that you may be able to throw monkey wrenches into it. I, I think that the uh, technicians will pull them out and keep the machine going. And so what we have to deal with going forward, in my mind, is how do you deal with a world in which these companies and the governments uh, whom either they control or the governments over them, how do you deal with a world in which they're producing these sorts of technological monstrosities? And maybe more importantly, how do you deal with a world in which you have what uh, Artie and Tola and, and yourself, Mary Harrington, uh, call the cyborg theocracy? How do you deal with uh, a new religious movement which is in a heterodox phase now, but the contours are very clear in which technology is the highest power and in which the expectation of what a civilization should be is that you improve the technology and thereby improve the human being. And how do you deal with people? E even again, if it just stops right here, how do you deal with people who are stuck to their phones? You know, I, you can't marry somebody like that. Uh, I can barely talk to somebody like that personally. Uh, but you, if you have your children in a school and they literally just hand out laptops and iPads like this is your teacher or maybe you don't even say take them to a school. This is a, a big thing in homeschooling now. AI based one on one tutors. Uh, how do you deal with a future in which there is this dramatic transformation happening psychologically and socially, the technology aside? And I think that uh, for me, the the big thing is to just raise up cultural barriers and that some of that's personal, uh, but the only way that it has any staying power, the only way it has any force is if it's communal. So that if it comes out of religious institutions, if it comes out of educational institutions, if it comes out of social institutions, and so that the standard is that the human being is in fact above any sort of economic or technological ambition, that human excellence should be the center. And I think that, uh, Atheists are not going to go for this. That's pretty much their stopping point. But it's a positive one. And there are many people, many evolutionary psychologists, biologists who feel that way. And I think that's very positive. But ultimately, it's a matter of maintaining those spiritual institutions that direct the, the mind, the soul towards the eternal. What is beyond this material world? What is there that this technological fetishism is both occluding and trying to replicate? So it sounds like you have no hope for the politicians. I, I think that there can be positive things, right? I think data privacy is very, very important. Uh, I, I don't think that it should just be legal, just in the same way it shouldn't be legal for me to creep into a bathroom and peek over the stalls. Uh, I don't see any reason why... Depending on how you gender identify, that's actually okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So uh, outside of that, well, I, I guess you could say that the same corporations that are pushing the rainbow flag out are also pushing little black glass eyes over the stall. And uh, I, it's amazing to me that we've accepted it to this point. It's amazing to me how quickly that faded into the background and that everyone is living as a sort of surveillance state superstar and they enjoy it. Uh, and not everyone enjoys it. Many people simply put up with it. That they put up with it is amazing to me, too. And those who don't want to live that way, uh, we really do have, a, it's, it's an uphill climb from here because you're not normal anymore if you don't want to be watched in the bathroom. You know, I was, uh, I was parked at a meter in LA the other day and uh, watched uh, one of those little delivery bots start trundling down the, the sidewalk across the street. And uh, it was an intersection, and uh, this, this car pulls up. You know, it looked like a '90s Toyota or something, unassuming. Uh, and uh, and a young guy leaned out of the the rear passenger window, and he just starts like laying into this delivery robot. Just starts like verbally abusing it, like insulting it, like colorful language, really like not holding back, expressing his contempt and and anger toward. Uh, this little robot that was trying so hard to look cute and whatever. And um, a young girl comes walking up the sidewalk behind the robot and like, you know, sort of between them. Uh, and, as, uh, and as she passes by, she looks over at him and she goes, you can't talk to them like that. You have to be nice to them. They're going to take over the world. And he goes, not this one. <laughs> and then, you know, like drove off. Um, and like the, it, it said so much to me about like the way that feelings about machines taking over the world are starting to become gendered in a way. You know, like men, I think, are more inclined right now to see a threat, and women, I think, have generally speaking been sort of cultivated or educated into thinking that like, no, these are our friends, they care for us and we care for them and it's gonna be nurturing and you know, don't upset the machines. And it's extra bizarre because, you know, I mean, I think a lot of women still have like the future's female on a t-shirt in their closet somewhere. That lasted for about five seconds. And you know, my riff on this is it used to be anything, uh, anything boys can do, girls can do better. That used to be the mantra. And now it's anything that girls can do, Borgs can do better is the mantra. And it's, it's really sad to see the way that so many women, I think, are being, you know, just, just conscripted into uh, this effort to make themselves obsolete, whether as, you know, sex partners or as sex symbols or as uh, birthing persons. You know, you can just see the, the drumbeat, you know, the way that uh, the sanctity of life and of, of natural generativity is being um, appropriated. And, and ripped out of, of womanhood and increasingly put it into this artificial environment. The future is fem, it's, it's Fembot from here on out. The future is Metropolis. And uh, you recall- You're the, talking the, about the, the classic the, film. Yeah, yeah, uh, 1927, Fritz Lang. The future is um, Maria uh, being replaced. And uh, I, I think women, you're, you're absolutely right. Women do tend, in general, uh, to, unless they're mothers and unless they're mama bears protecting their, their cubs, they tend to downplay threats. What's interesting about that dynamic, though, is that while men sense a threat, it's men driving this. It's not like there's a ton of female coders and engineers doing this. Uh, this is driven by men. 
And it's, it's really intriguing as far as the, hum, the human eusocial electric ant farm is, and rather than a queen, uh, you've got male billionaires, mostly white male billionaires, not to sound like one of them or anything, but it's true. It's not as if this is something that is driven by femininity. Uh, the, the rapid production of all of these different sort of greater replacement bots is, is a fulfillment of this tiny minority of men and their ambitions. And a part of it is the replacement of the rest of us, or at least the demotion of the rest of us to lower status. And the idea of automation, people speculate about automation all the time. It, oftentimes you can see what the general trend is going to be. Very rarely do these predictions pan out one-to-one uh, -to, -one to the numerical projection. But it's, it's very clear that in addition to outsourcing working class labor, uh, they're doing everything possible to replace factory workers who do still exist in America with automation. The farming has largely gone the way of automated, like large scale farming equipment. You now have literally uh, remote controlled combines going down the fields in the most advanced farm, like big corporate uh, farms. So like everything that made a man a man, and, and warfare is the same. Uh, warfare is largely, you have this, this technological buffer. If you're a wealthy nation with a, a high-tech military, you have this technological buffer that reduces fatalities. Obviously, nobody is sad about that. But it also changes the nature of warfare. It changes the nature of risk. And it, 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 it challenges everything it means to be a man. And the more that happens, the more we have this, this sort of simulated environments to do it. Uh, you still have the UFC. That's for real. But pro wrestling is taking off side by side with it. And side with, beside that is the explosion in militaristic and uh, uh, agonistic video games in which young men are pouring a lot of their, their vitality, their virility into. Uh, it's, it's all of it, though, at the top of all that, at the top of this, this, this great uh, eunuch hive, um, there are men. And they are men who are fulfilling themselves. These are not... These are not Borg men, right? Like these are men who are fulfilling their sexual desires. They're fulfilling their ambition to conquer other men. Uh, they do not probably, I, you know, the ones that I've met don't, and I'm imagining most of the others, they don't sit around in a VR heaven. Uh, they simply fly to actual heaven on earth. So the, the, that dynamic is also very troubling. And yeah. Yeah, you're right, um, and I, I, I won't even say it's 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 the white guys, uh, although many of them, yes, because you look at the Russians and they have all kinds of problems of their own. They've got cosmists out there. We can talk about them in, in a little bit. Sure, sort of. No, no escape from the Nazi Uh But um, but it's not Russian guys who are out there doing this. It's what it's Western guys. Um, and if there's one thing that they seem to all have in common, it's that you know they're not even Joel Osteen Christians. They're not Christians at all. And maybe that's our maybe that's our entry point in understanding what's going on here spiritually. You know, the, the Gnostic element is something that really fascinates me. Speaking of Christianity, and uh, the, the Gnostic element is something that comes up a lot in the book, um, an entire chapter dedicated to it, but a lot of touch points along the way. Um, it is... So before I go there, just really quickly, something that uh, Megan O'Giblin and many others have noticed about Ray Kurzweil's singularity prophecies is that it, it mirrors Christian prophecy. Uh, you know, you, you have 
what, what is the, the source of our problem? What's the theodicy? What's the, the source of evil? The source of evil is flaws in evolution. Uh, what is the salvific principle? Well, of course, it's technology to fix all of the genetic flaws and to overcome want with radical abundance and to overcome ignorance with digital intelligence. And then that playing forward to an apocalypse, that unveiling, that revelation of his dreamt of singularity. 2045, by that point, the artificial general intelligence will have solved all the major problems. Human beings will basically be irrelevant except for to the extent that they've given themselves up, this sort of kenosis, this, this emptying of oneself into the machine and one's justification and one's immortality is the degree to which one's body, brain, and in essence, the patterns of what would be the soul to him, the neurological patterns, are imprinted into the machine, into, imprinted onto that digital God. And so you have this, this inversion of Christianity there where it removes all of the spiritual actors uh, from God the Creator to Jesus the Savior to Jesus returning, and it, it, it replaces them with technological entities. And the Gnostic element, I would argue, does the same. I, I think that something that, uh, you know, I, I, I to, in, in full disclosure, I know some Gnostics. Some um, of my best friends. Some of my best friends are Gnostics. <laughs> uh, I've met Bishop uh, uh, Stephen Heller. Uh, uh, one of my best friends is, in fact, a Gnostic, an, a Gnostic priest. And while I don't subscribe to that belief system, uh, nor do I take their Eucharist, I, I, I see something very, very different in them, and I see something very, very different in the Gnostic uh, tracks themselves. The, 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 the belief system of Gnosticism, if you want to look at uh, ex extreme spirituality so that the, the spirit is everything and the material is just simply nothing but an irrelevancy and evil in it by its nature, that would be Gnosticism. Or if you take scientism or atheism where in which the material is the, the most important and anything spiritual is simply an epiphenomenon. It's just it's something that comes out of the material and that is the basis. And, and I see Christianity as being somewhere in between that, right? So that, uh, you know, traditional Christianity is a way of justifying all of this flawed creation. It's a way of making sacred and making holy that body that the Gnostics reject and that the, the materialists would say is all we have. What transhumanism is to me is it's a, a, a complete inversion of this Gnostic extremism in which the spirit is all and the material is irrelevant or evil. And it takes that ambition of the Gnostics to overcome that material body that scientism presents to us, this flawed, dying body, and it makes it even, it, it basically materializes spiritual ambition. The digital now becomes the astral. The, the, the perfection and the justification of the body is now done by way of device, by technology. So it is Gnostic in that sense that it tries to overcome what, what we are given, but it, it's, it's insofar as the, the real spiritual Gnostic impulse, it's, 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 it's polar opposite. Well, you know, you had uh, Marshall McLuhan a long time ago describe media as extensions of man and that, you know, when you get to digital, you're really talking about extending our senses and our faculties into, uh, into the invisible domain, into the air. Uh, these are basically telepathic technologies. Uh, and so, you know, it only makes sense for, you know, for someone who's in that slipstream of Gnosticism, which seems to be a heresy that, you know, it's, it's been there in, in Judaism, it's been there in Christianity, 
uh, we're talking thousands of years here where, you know, sometimes you, you beat it down and it pops up somewhere else. Seems to be, uh, you know, one of the, one of the eternal foes, at least until the end times come along. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't be a surprise to see this, um, this possibility of using, uh, physical means to leap out of our skin, to leap out of the material condition, you know, turn the weapons of our prison against against the prison itself, you know, to break those, those clay vessels as the ancient Gnostics described it. Um, you know, that desire to become uh, purely spiritual, to become really angelic, you know, this is something where the ambition is maybe not to become a god or to replace god, uh, and is not to become, you know, some kind of, uh, of, of super beast, uh, but to really become, you know, to become angelic. Uh, I think I find it very interesting that, you know, every time uh, angels appear um, to uh, to speak with human beings uh, in in the Bible. Um, it's pretty much one at a time. Uh, they come singly and they deliver a message. The messengers and first words out of the mouth: "Do not be afraid." Um, and contrast that to the demons. The demons do not really travel singly that much. Uh, oftentimes, characteristically, they travel in packs. Their name is legion. The swarm. The swarm. And so. Uh, Demons appear to be much more interoperable than the angels. Yes, you have the heavenly host and you have all that. And I don't want to dig you know, too, too far down this particular rabbit hole, but there is something about how that kind of collectivity, that, that interoperability um, has been associated for a long time, uh, not just with angels as such, but with the rebel angels, with the angels who aren't, who aren't themselves content to be angels. You know, that was that was cosmically where the trouble started, where where some angels it wasn't good enough to be angels, uh, and so when you're looking at all these trends, you know, you're, you're looking at, at Gnosticism and its return. This can all seem like very arcane and, and inaccessible to most ordinary people. Even I think a lot of Christians are kind of going like, "Oh boy, you know, if if I have to start thinking in this way, how am I ever going to sort of you know I can spend the rest of my life trying to study." Uh, the past 2,000 years of theological history, and you're telling me that I really don't know what I'm doing when I look at my phone unless I understand that Nag Hammadi's <laughs> Like, please, you know, how do you get your arms around it? So you had to do all this research for this book. You, the, the book isn't, isn't 12 volumes. It's a one volume. An ordinary human being can make it through the book. I've done it myself. It's a good read. How did you, uh, how did you stop yourself? How did you d discern which rabbit holes not to go down? That was very difficult, uh, and it's a fairly long book. It's 400 pages from beginning to end, big text for the older readers and, and myself being among them. Um, but yeah, it, it was I, I just simply, you could think of it really as just uh, 13 different essays uh, going in, uh, all of which approach the same singularity from different angles, although it is intended to go from beginning to end, and they, each piece builds one upon the other. One of the things that really made me sad to leave out was, and people have done a lot of great research on this, that it's somewhat inaccessible, all the ways in which ancient mythologies were uh, predictive of robots, were predictive of, you know, you've got like the Brahma Astra of Hindu mythology that is real. I mean, it's just so on the nose for a nuclear warhead, right? It's a, an arrow that is shot. And once it lands, the mountains tremble, the seas boil, uh, the, the grass is nothing but uh, salt after that. Uh, the, the, ground, the ground can never be arable again. Uh, those sorts of things. And of course, like the, uh, 
the, the various contraptions described in Greek mythology. And to some extent, there's also uh, counterparts in Buddhism that uh, I was sad to leave out. Um, and also, there's a lot of you're, you're probably familiar with guys like Joseph Farrell, who write a lot about alchemy and the correspondence between transhumanism and alchemy. He takes it much farther than I would. But those topics are extremely fascinating. When I was writing the book, I was writing the book for a very general audience. And there may be places where I've where I where it will challenge them. But in, it is really a book written for the general reader. And it's a book in which if any specific topic is of interest, you could go straight to that without having to, to go all the way through. But, uh, you know, I, there's plenty of, like you say, there's plenty more possibilities out there. And I suppose that I can uh, trash whatever credibility I have in the next book by going down those ra rabbit holes. Oh, there's another rabbit hole. Uh, it sounds like your ambition for this book is to spark some kind of, of spiritual reawakening. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what does that look like? I mean, what do you, you know, you, someone, someone picks up the book, they read it, they, they get it, they close the book, then ideally what happens? Uh, you never have to read another book again. That's it. From, <laughs> from that point forward. The last book. Yeah. From that point forward, you go forth, you smash the machines. Uh, of course, you pray for your, your immortal soul beforehand and then you die. Um, so this is a, a butlerian jihad, as they yeah. say. No, uh, I, I think that my, my hope is that it gives people the, the tools to at least get a sense of what what the impetus behind this civilizational transformation really is and to ask themselves whether they want to be a part of it. A lot of people characterize transhumanism as some sort of leftism or some sort of liberalism, which is really pretty ridiculous to me. I mean, it's largely driven by libertarian tech bros. Um, and uh, even traditional Christians defend these people. Uh, even some of, some of my favorite people in the church are obsessed with the uh, accumulation and sustaining of power by way of technology, despite all of the sort of underlying elements. So I would like to think that it would at least orient them to make an informed choice as to whether or not they uh, would like to become a part of this civilizational transformation, whether they want to see, and this is maybe the most important element, because we're going to age out, maybe laying in the arms of uh, Ben Gertzel's Grace Robot, but uh, children, uh, how do you raise children? What direction do you aim the soul of the individuals in the civilization? What direction do you aim the soul of the civilization? That's a question that I ask at the end, and I hope that it's an informed answer uh, that someone will arrive at. Do you have hope? Do you have hope for the next 10 years? Where do you, where do you think we're going to be? I am not a materialist. I, I, I steel man materialism, and I steel man Darwinian evolution in the book. And in general, I, I get along very well with materialists. I'm not myself a materialist. So I think that whether or not we win on this plane or whether it ends up looking more and more like the latter chapters of Revelation ultimately don't matter. I mean, we're all going to die anyway. So whether it's one at, one at a time or all at once, in some sense, it's irrelevant. What happens, what is recorded in, in a much, in, in, in the eternal book, just to leave it at that, is the most important. 
But I do actually have hope day by day. I, I don't think most people want to be cyborgs. Most people don't want to be uh, slut pop aficionados. Most people don't want to be degenerate. Most people really do want to live satisfying lives and do right by their fellow man. And I, I, I believe that some portion of us will always do that. And there will always be that portion that is either lost or perhaps, you know, I really don't know how to explain psychopathic behavior, just evil. Uh, they will always be with us. We will always be with us. So I have hope in that. If it ends tomorrow in a nuclear holocaust, okay. And if it ends a million years from now in uh, the, the sun exploding or whatever, actually it's quite a bit longer, uh, then... That's also okay. I, I, I have hope in the eternal. What about hope in getting technology back under the right kind of control? I think that it's very, very important for good people who are able, who are competent in these technologies to use them in ways that defend what is good in human nature, to defend good people. Uh, but I also think that there's a real temptation there. I think that someone I really, oddly enough, I admire people like Peter Thiel. But I think that ultimately he is as much of a techno-fetishist and a transhumanist as any of the people who would cry out these demonic transhumanists while at the same time uh, take his support or uh, seek his endorsement and, um, and, and money. Well, so, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd have to sit down with, with Peter himself for probably more than the full hour to, to unpack all this stuff. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one of his, his little catchphrases is uh, AI is um, communist and, yes. and uh, crypto is libertarian. Um, it's interesting, though, you know, just to, to go back to, to where we were uh, not that long ago in the conversation, um, seeing people who kind of start out as libertarians of a sort turn into collectivists of a sort, you know, that is something almost magical that technology does. It, it takes you from a rugged individualist and turns you into uh, someone who wants to, uh, to be part of or to orchestrate a kind of hive mind. Well, just to, to put a... a, a book stop on that. I, I do think that it's impossible to get by in any civilization without technology. You have to decide what technologies are appropriate to the task, what technologies are appropriate to you, what technologies are appropriate to your society. And so, especially if you're a soldier or if you are in the upper echelons of the corporate world, uh, these are very, very difficult decisions in many ways because you have to compete. And that's, I, I think, ultimately probably going to end very tragically. But at the same time, until we get to that tragedy or until we get to the uh, sunlit uplands or wherever it is we're heading, I do think that it's really important not to have this sort of if-then purely Luddite mentality. I don't think any, first off, it's not realistic. Nobody does that. Even Ted made bombs, right? Even Ted eventually wrote, you know, he would ride his bike to the store. He, no, nobody can be a pure Luddite. So uh, the, the question is not whether we reject technology. It's simply, and it has to be done person by person, community by community. It has to be what technologies are appropriate to the task. And so I do think that many, uh, some of my best friends are coders. Um, and I think that those people, those coders, uh, and, and those who are selling these technologies as well, uh, they are not evil people, the ones that I know. Um, I, I fear that even those that will do evil are not necessarily evil in their intentions. But 
it's very important for those good people to use the technologies at hand. For instance, um, the, the Bitcoin monasteries, I think, uh, have everything, everything about it is goodwill seeking to use technologies as a defensive force, like a rifle, right? And a rifle has a very clearly defined narrow range of possibilities, but it is definitely possible to shoot worse and better people. And so to the extent that any technology is used to uplift the best and to uh, destroy the worst, I guess we're, we're on our way. We're on our way one way or the other. Uh, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, you can find the book, Amazon, um, the, the Beast. You can also find it at bookshop.org, which I also love. And uh, it's available for pre-sale as of this recording. Maybe it'll be available by the time we get there. What's pub date? Uh, August 29th. Got it. And uh, socials, Twitter? Uh, social media slave chain at J-O-E-B-O-T-X-Y-Z, Twitter and Gitter. And uh, the website, Joe Bot. Now, of course, you can always find me at the War Room with Steve Bannon. Not to put too fine a point on it, social media slave. Gotta love it. The book is Dark Eon, Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. The man is Joe Allen. This is just about all the time we've got, at least until next time around. So if you found this conversation meaningful, and who wouldn't? Please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more, ever more content like this. Go to blazetv.com, use the code 0hour20, that's Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0 for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Polis, and may God have mercy on us all.